world needs a little positivity, and if, and if it can come in the form of, of everyone rallying together to get this guy nuggets, amen to that. That makes me happy. What is up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Food Marketing Nerds. It's episode number 38, and this is definitely one of my favorite interviews that we've ever done, and I don't say that very often. We have Brandon Roden on the show today, who, get ready for this title, is the VP of Advertising, Social Media, Media, and Digital Marketing for Wendy's. It's a mouthful, and I honestly don't know how he does it, but everything that you see with the Wendy's logo on it is the work of Brandon and his team. Brandon has a history of transforming brands, and since joining the company in 2011, he's done the exact same thing for Wendy's in an industry that is notorious for commoditizing its products. To give you a little context, since Brandon joined Wendy's, their stock price has increased nearly 200%, not to mention the 15 consecutive quarters of positive same-store sales that they've had, which is unreal in that industry. In this episode, you'll learn why leaving silos between marketing teams is a huge mistake, how to sell a brand when your competitors are selling a commodity, why consistency is crucial across every customer-facing platform, and so much more. Yes, this is a food marketing podcast, and yes, we talk about food marketing, but there's a ton of advice in this episode that is universal to building a great brand in any industry. So you might want to pause, grab a pen and paper, and get ready to jot down some notes, because Brandon is about to lay down some serious knowledge on you. Welcome to the Food Marketing Nerds Podcast, where we talk marketing, branding, and social media with the smartest minds in the business. Here's your host, Alex Osterley. So Brandon, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Happy to do it. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and how you came into your role at Wendy's? Sure. So I run media, advertising, digital, social media for Wendy's. I was brought on six years ago to build out a digital marketing presence. And uh, quickly after that, they kept giving me stuff to do. And now I run, everything's got the logo on it. So if you see a TV spot, that's my team. If you see a crazy tweet we're throwing out, that's my team. If you uh, actually go into a restaurant and pick up a bag of food, the logo on the bag and the bag design and the cup design, that's all my team. So I run most of the consumer-facing communications for the brand. And so before Wendy's, you were working in, in PR before working digital? Yeah, so I, I uh, was at an agency for a while where I did uh, public relations, media relations, and digital relations. So ended up doing a lot of uh, kind of blogging back in the day before digital was a significant thing. But yeah, I've, I've been in either media relations, public relations, or, or some capacity of marketing through previous gigs. Uh, this is my first QSR brand, so I've never been in fast food until Wendy's. Dealt a lot with tech clients and actually a lot of B2B work uh, before Wendy's. So what are some of the, the major differences and, and challenges that you see on the horizon for quick service restaurants being in the industry for six years now? So, you know, when I first started here, the biggest challenge was the new entrants. So it was the Paneras and the Chipotle's of the world, for example. The marketplace became flooded with options. So it used to be 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you go out to lunch and you had like four or five quick options and that was it. If you want to spend less than 10 bucks and, you know, less than a half an hour, uh, you had a pretty small selection of, of options. Uh, when I joined Wendy's, part of the reason the brand at the time wasn't doing that great was because there were so many options and people were, were starting to choose the new option. What's changed over that time is brand building has become more significant with a lot of food brands and specifically in fast food. We went from a model of essentially just tell people what we're selling to actually have a relationship with consumers. And that's actually been the most fun of my job is, is to develop that relationship and develop that brand. 
uh, and it leads to uh, people actually caring a bit more about your products, caring a bit more about your brand, and, and visiting you not just because you know their grandma took them to get a frosty when they were a kid, but also because you actually want something from this brand, and and have an appreciation for what the brand is. So not to say we're not we're not Apple, we're not Nike, we're not those sort of brands yet, but uh, we're on a good path to uh, creating those relationships. So when you're starting off with a brand who is selling somewhat of a commodity, it's if you're selling just food without a brand, how do you and where do you start to actually build those relationships and, and build the brand like you have at Wendy's? So really, and, and the work we did was to go back to why we were founded in the first place. You know, there's a reason brands become successful. I think, I think a lot of brands forget that the reason they became big was they were good at something. And there was something that consumers recognized them for as being different, special, and, and interesting. So what we did was, like like most good brands do, what Starbucks did, what, what a lot of brands do, is dig into what made us great, what made us great at, at one time. And as we dug into that, it was very clear. What made us great was the fact that we were unique in the category, that we didn't settle for, for fast, cheap. We wanted to actually serve individuals and not billions and billions. So for us, the reason Dave Thomas founded this brand, you know, in 1969, was he was totally dissatisfied with the options in the market. The guy would love cheeseburgers, he loved restaurants, and he thought that well, the, the competition that was out there was essentially looking purely at efficiency and not looking at, looking at actually serving people well. So he said, I'm going to do things differently. And, and I think that comes through very clearly. Look at our products, right? We have square cheeseburgers. We're the only brand that does that. We do that because... Uh, Dave thought they tasted better because the corners stick out of the bun and you, you get more meat in every bite. Hmm. Uh, and we kept it because it's kind of one of our signatures. It's quirky. It's different. It's unique. And we embrace that. We're very comfortable with that. Look at the Frosty. You know, this thing's not a milkshake. It's not, it's not a ice cream. It's something weird in the middle. But it's unique. It's different. It's quirky. It's us. So what really the work we did was to, to rediscover who we were. Why Where's the Beef was a sensation was we were a bit of an outlier in the, in the market. So as we rediscovered that, and we actually worked with a, a company uh, to help us do that, we rediscovered that we built what is our brand voice based on how we should exist as a company. And that was really the genesis of all the work that you've seen over the last several years, the, the changes in our marketing and in our social media and in our digital marketing and our, even our television is all a result of this fundamental shift back to who we really are. And to your point, the, the industry that we're in tends to commoditize itself. It tends to make everything just about here's a thing to buy and a picture of it on TV with our logo next to it. Everyone does that in our industry. And in many cases, you could cross out the logo and not even know who, which brand it is. What makes us special is the fact that we have a totally different voice than everyone else, that we do things differently. We go the extra mile to do things like not freeze our meat for our cheeseburgers and we don't create just a chicken sandwich. We create a spicy chicken sandwich. And we don't just create ice cream. We don't have a, a soft serve machine. We have a frosty. Um, everything we do is just a little different, a little unique, and we have to embrace that as a brand. Um, this is an example. I have a cutout in my office sitting right behind me right now of Chris Pratt from Guardians of the Galaxy. That is what we look to actually as our brand voice, believe it or not. And he, he came on the scene just a few years ago, so that's a recent addition to the kind of the iconography we use. But he represents what we are as a brand, a family guy who's a little different. He doesn't have any superpowers. He's just funny and smart and clever and, and, and resourceful. That's our brand. We're not, we're not Tom Cruise. We're, we're Chris Pratt. We're, 
this kind of easygoing, family-oriented, connected brand. So to answer your question, really the, what, what the shift has been is we've, I think we've rediscovered ourselves. We've discovered what we are as a brand. Hmm. So one of the things that I really love about you guys as a brand is your willingness to really go out on a limb and do things that most companies wouldn't even consider doing, even ones who know their brand really well. So for example, the Twitter burns that you're doing during the Sriracha campaign and just yesterday, the response to that dude asking, how many retweets do I need for a year of free nuggets? Which is hilarious when you guys responded to 18 million. So is that a result of having a team that knows the brand really well? Or how do you foster that kind of, of culture where people feel comfortable to to go out on a limb or just be themselves as the brand, I guess? Yeah, so, so I think that's being very clear with what your brand voice is and then hiring awesome people and letting them do their jobs. That's really the what separates, I think, us from most brands that aren't as successful as we are in this space. And we're not perfect. We're, we've got a lot of people are beating us soundly. But in our space, we do pretty well, I think, because we have great people that understand the voice and we let them do their jobs. Things like having that Chris Pratt cutout behind me, every time my team sits in my office and we talk, every time we go to a meeting anywhere in this building, we remind ourselves, what is our voice? Who are we as a brand? We have 250,000 employees as a brand. It's really hard to have that many individuals speak as one brand, and it's, it's frankly, it's impossible. But if you make clear distinctions of what your brand is and isn't, and if you hire people that are genuinely good at this sort of work and have a love for the brand, your chances of actually expressing your voice consistently go up dramatically. And a perfect example is this, I guess, the challenge to get a certain amount of retweets I don't, I don't know who it was internally that responded with the 18 million retweets to get our year free nuggets. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, so we have a team of, of a couple social people here, and we have a team at BML, our, our social, our, actually our advertising agency in general. They do everything from our TV to our social content. And essentially what happens whenever we have this sort of situation, and we've had probably a dozen of these where they got really big and actually three or four in the last six months, what typically happens is we, we give them guidelines to play them They'll respond in real time to most things, and some things they ask permission. Uh, you know, the last couple that have gotten big, there's been a conversation before there was a reply posted, just because it's you know potentially very impactful to the brand. Most of these things actually end up in my text on my cell phone. <laughs> the way a lot of times this works is, hey, this just happened. I'll get a text from my agency or from most likely my, my internal people saying, hey, this just happened. We'd love to respond like this. What do you think? And sometimes we'll go back and forth and tweak it a bit, but more often than not, I say go. Because, again, they know the voice. They know who we are. In this particular case, uh, our agency actually responded to this guy. We did have some back and forth to get it running the way it was because we obviously had to agree to giving away a year of nuggets, which isn't, isn't you know, a few bucks. But, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a conversation that we have internally that gets us to these external conversations. We also have clear guidelines from our legal team. So I think what tends to stop a lot of companies, it's a few things. One, they don't know their voice. I think that's the biggest thing. But the second thing is that it's risky to do this sort of thing, right? Any marketing is risky, but it's risky to do this sort of thing. So a lot of legal, uh, legal mumbo-jumbo rears its head and causes problems. In our case, we've set up kind of a, a bumper bowling kind of scenario where we know what our limits are. We know what we can and can't do. I have a, uh, since I control all advertising, I have a pretty significant budget I can leverage when needed to do things like give away a year of free nuggets and promote a tweet and talk to an influencer and all that jive. But ultimately, I think it does boil down to knowing your voice and hiring awesome people and letting them do their jobs. If you do those three things, it's, it's really amazing what, what can be accomplished. 
just out of curiosity, did that retweets number, did it start at 18 million? Was it like 5 million? No, we should go to 18. Should we go to 30? No, <laughs> no 18. Eight, eight. So, so the record up to this point is 3 million. That was Ellen DeGeneres. She did uh, that selfie at uh, from like the Oscars, I think, a, a couple years back, and it, it's at about three million. So the number eighteen, it was something that you know the agency just came up with. The guy at the agency just said, "Hey, what about 18? But to me, it felt big enough that it was hard. You know, it would get attention, and it was a it was actually a challenge to accomplish, but not um, not so big that it was totally unobtainable. I mean, it's big. It's it's you know six times what Ellen's got. But I tell you, the world needs some positivity like that right now, doesn't it? It needs, like, let's rally together over nuggets. That feels good, <laughs> right? And, and that's what our brand brings to the world, frankly, I think. We bring you that little smile, that little moment, that little bite of frosty, that, that baconator when you're starving and, you know, you just want to devour all the bacon and, and cheeseburger you can handle. The world needs a little positivity, and if, and if it can come in the form of, of everyone rallies together to get this guy nuggets, amen to that. That makes me happy. <laughs> So another great thing that Wendy's has been consistently good at it over these past few years is is having that same customer experience across all of your different channels, whether it's advertising, in-store, on social media, and digital on your website. Does that stem from the top, or how does that, how does that come to fruition? So uh, the, the magic behind that is really that we don't have silos. So we have a team here called the advertising team, and obviously we have a chief marketing officer that, that I run the advertising team, and I report into the chief marketing officer. And my advertising team doesn't, uh, the team here, doesn't have delineation between hard silos. So the guy who does video does video online, he does video for TV, he does radio, he does streaming audio. Now you have to have specialties because they have to do certain work, but we don't have a lot of separation. I have a director who's in charge of integration, that's her job, it's across all channels. So I think the, the, it's a conscious decision to say, we're going to communicate as a voice, as a brand, and we're going to use whatever channels make sense to communicate to the person we're trying to talk to. So if the target is on YouTube, we're on YouTube. If the target is on TV, we're on TV. Most likely, given our scale, we have you know, nearly 7,000 locations, we're going to be everywhere. You know, my title is 40 feet long because, you know, marketing is very complicated now, and that's good. Our toolbox for marketing is huge. And a lot of companies just decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get good at one thing. I'm going to get good at television. I'm going to get good at, at social. I don't think that's the way the world works anymore. Not for big brands, not for brands doing billions of dollars in business. You have to actually be good at a lot of things. So the ad team that's here, and i got to give huge credit to our, our chief marketing officer, Kurt Kane, and huge credit to the board and huge credit to my, my C-suite here. What they've done for us is they've given us the permission to speak as a as a brand through whatever channels are needed to communicate properly, and uh, and that extends everywhere from the, the napkins in the restaurant down to the the, the tweets to the television spots. Um, big responsibility, but you know I'm I'm having I have, I'll have a meeting in a half an hour about the next tweet we're going to send out, and then I have a meeting in the next minute about the upfront that's hundreds of millions of dollars for a TV buy. Hmm. Uh, it's all the same stuff. It, it really is. I mean, think about how you how you consume media today, right? My my daughter, who's you know eight, we watching TV and the commercials come on. She looks down at her iPad. It's the way it works. These mm-hmm. these, these mediums aren't separated in the minds of consumers. Uh, consumers are totally media agnostic. They don't care. And the fact that brands care so much about the individual little fiefdoms of television versus print versus digital versus whatever, I think is hurting them. It's hurting them a lot. And I completely agree. And I think one of the 
interesting and I guess enlightened insights that you just mentioned is that people are completely media or channel agnostic. And a lot, of, I feel like a lot of brands are going out there starting with, all right, what's the most expensive part of the production process or what, what gets the most of the budget, usually advertising or production of a, of a commercial. And then leave, they leave social media on the back burner to somebody who, if you were to to bring a tweet up to the C-suite or one of the VPs and ask, all right, what should we do here? They'd probably be like, what, what, are, you, what are you asking me this for? So it's interesting to hear that you guys have that, that, that you have that focus I, that puts an importance across all the, of the different channels and it's clearly paying off for you guys. I think you're totally right. Consumers just don't care. They don't. And fortunately, this organization does recognize that you know, our voice is what ultimately is, is what's, what's guiding everything and where people are. So I think it's been very successful for us. I think a lot of companies would benefit from taking a step back and actually watching their own families and how they interact with media today because it's, it's not separate. It's not nothing. Is, everything's connected. That's the magic of, of modern marketing. That's why it's so fun. So marketing has definitely changed over the course of the time that you started at Wendy's just a few years ago. And I, I know that you have a personal history of going in and revamping, especially the digital side of brands, getting them to where they need to be. And Wendy's, as an example, being the first QSR on Facebook. How do you get the decision makers to, to take that initial leap of faith into untested waters like, like Facebook when nobody else is on there? So I'm not actually sure if we were the first brand on Facebook. We were the first brand to do, it might have been, and I don't remember, but we were definitely the first brand to seriously engage in the space. We, we had our, were the first brand to hold a all-hands team meeting in Facebook and actually develop a voice and develop our, our strategy. Really, the, the way, you know, the, way the, the, the C-suite works, and, and I'm, a, I'm an officer, I'm a VP, so you know, I'm, I do have direct access to these folks, which is great because then I can hopefully influence decisions that are above me. But um, the, way, the way it works is you have to show them it's going to improve the business. It's literally that simple. You have to talk in the language of the constituent that you're, that you're talking to. So I think a lot of companies fail or a lot of uh, you know, potential change agents for companies, people who come in to do things like build out a digital function in an organization, fail because they try to use vanity metrics. You try to say things like even, even retweets. Saying impressions and views and retweets and, and view time and unique users and likes, I mean, that's all, let's be honest, that stuff is, is garbage. It's not real to a CFO. It's not. They just don't care. It, it has no context. To say you have 10 million likes on your Facebook page means absolutely nothing to somebody whose day is spent trying to grow the business just because it has no context of how it actually affects the business. What you have to obviously do is, is tie to the business and the results of the business. So, you know, the work that, that my team does essentially is to try to tie together what is the impact of the work we do. And once you, once you can show examples and show cases and show business change that occurs from the marketing, it gets a lot easier. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. You still have to sell in a lot of things to folks that, that don't use the certain platforms that don't understand how consumers are, are using Snapchat or Instagram or whatever. But ultimately, you know, the business results guide everything at a, at a successful company. So, you know, translating what we're doing into this is how it actually affects people's behavior and therefore affects our business is totally critical. I don't go to a C-suite meeting, our senior leadership meeting, and talk about retweets. I don't. I can talk about a CNBC article that just ran talking about our retweets because that's relevant. 
that affects the stock, that affects the company. I can talk about a Fortune or a Mashable article that talks about our great social media presence and uses examples of retweets. So I can use things that consumers feel and that are external and that influence our company. But really the magic is saying, here is what the business did and in major part due to the activities that we are undertaking. I think a lot of folks fail to do that. They fail to connect those dots. I don't blame a CFO for saying, what the heck does video view time mean for our business? They don't know. Most marketers don't know. And that's our job is to figure out how to connect all those dots. That kind of leads into another question. How are you guys measuring or how can you view, for example, influencer marketing or Instagram, which is primarily brand awareness? How do you view the traction in as a business case? Well, brand awareness for now, you know, you click through, they have a direct response model being that just was released. So now you can actually click on a product and go straight to a retail page to buy it. So I think all these things are going to merge eventually, but there are a lot of ways you can, you can potentially track. We do use media metrics in some cases, things like reach to understand how reach impacts behavior at scale. Uh, you can do studies, you know, Nielsen has some great studies like their brand effects studies that let you understand reach across channels and uh, duplicative reach and, and unique reach. And uh, you can look at individual targets and understand how that reach affects them. You can look at studies that look specifically at purchase intent. So it gives you an indicator that someone's interested. In a perfect world, though, you actually tie it directly back to the behavior of the individual. So you actually can track from exposure to sale if you have a non-anonymized user, if you have an unknown user. That's why loyalty platforms, for example, are so big with a lot of companies now, because you can, in theory, track what someone is interested in. It's, it's anonymized. So we don't know who it's you, but we know that people who were exposed to an ad in a certain place are actually coming into your retail location and buying the product. So in a perfect world, is actually an end-to-end you know, viewability of, of someone's behavior, but more likely you are making very educated guesses on how you're affecting people's behavior. We use a lot of external studies. That's our primary metric, actually, of understanding whether or not we're influencing behavior. But I can actually make our market move pretty quick. We can influence our business within a few days with the right tactics. Uh, and it's not always the same tactic. It depends on what's going on in the world. It depends on the product you're trying to sell. It depends on the target you're trying to talk to. But um, QSR responds pretty quickly to advertising. That's why uh, advertising in general, I say advertising, I don't mean just TV. I mean any communication that's external push to consumers at scale. But a lot of times people will start with, with studies. That's usually the first good step is use Nielsen, use an MTA like Google 360 or Marketing Evolution or whatever, develop, build tools that help connect the dots for you. It'll be really interesting to see over the next few years how the interconnectedness of everything starts to paint a, a more accurate picture of or a direct picture of saying this person saw this ad while then a few days later went to the Wendy's drive through just through whether it's the cell phone companies or the internet connections it's going to be it'll be interesting it's coming yeah I think it is coming and, and obviously there's a lot of privacy concerns to be considered in that process we you know as a marketer I don't want my as a human being I don't want my privacy to be invaded but at the same time, I do want relevant communication sent to me. I really don't want to get ads fed to me that I could care less about. I would much rather you send me ads, companies send me ads about, about topics I actually am interested in. So I think there's absolutely a balance to be struck over time. Uh, and a lot of this can be aggregated and anonymized very easily in things like social platforms where I don't know if I'm talking to you or I'm talking to a person standing next to you. It's just you have an interest and I'm, I'm delivering you an ad based on your location or your interest or whatever. I think you're right. 
I think as TVs become more connected, as all the technologies begin to merge, as you have things like single sign-ins across multiple platforms, what that's going to lead to is a world where marketers have a much better view of what marketing works, which is going to reduce waste in marketing, which will actually lower the cost of many products and ultimately will allow people to receive the communications they care about versus being bombarded with millions of messages a week that are relevant to them. Yeah, it's it's if people can get past the privacy issue, I think that in some ways it's definitely for the better. You don't want to see ads that are completely irrelevant. I, I agree with that. I think it's just as much on the side of the platforms and the, the brands to work with technologies to make privacy something people don't have to get past. So I think the you know the idea I think you hear on two sides is one you know if you've got nothing to hide, so let let all the information free. And the other side is, I'm going to lock everything down. A lot of people are somewhere in the middle, and that's that's probably the right place to be is somewhere in the middle to say I'm going to expose enough to brands and to companies and to platforms that I that it, that it benefits me, and maybe they see some benefit of it, but not so much that I feel like I'm being intruded upon and and it's uncomfortable or we're in a situation where brands or platforms or whatever know too much. I, I'm a huge advocate for data privacy. I believe in data privacy. I also believe in effective and efficient and relevant marketing. And I think, you know, the brands that take that seriously, that say we are recognizing that people's individual privacy is critical to this process, do things a little different. I mean, I, I for example, don't buy a lot of ad. I don't buy ad networks that I don't feel comfortable they're handling data properly. I don't buy ad networks that are purely programmatic without any uh, kind of conscious to them. That's part of the reason you don't see our name show up in a lot of articles when they talk about brand safety problems. Because a lot of times what happens is if you buy these huge networks that tend to be, uh, you know, purely driven off people's behavior and, and that's it with no acknowledgement of what's right or wrong is your brand ends up in places it shouldn't. And there's a lot of products within these companies like YouTube, for example. I buy a lot of YouTube. But I don't have any brand privacy or, or brand safety concerns or personal privacy concerns because the way we buy, you just, you just got to gotta be clever about how you buy and know the market and Make sure you're keeping in mind both the company's desires and consumers' desire for privacy. There's no reason those two things can't coexist. Now, kind of changing gears a little bit, I know Wendy's works with a a few agencies on a consistent basis. I I shouldn't assume. So is is VML the primary agency, or are you working with uh, multiple different creative media agencies? Uh, VML is our primary creative agency uh, in Kansas City. VML, I brought them on as a team here, I should say, but I, I brought them on as our digital agency of record a few years ago. And... We gave them all the business, so all the creative business, national creative business, uh, about two years ago now, a year and a half ago. Uh, we have Bravo in, in Miami that does our Hispanic marketing. They do an amazing job. They're also part of WPP. We have MediaVest doing our media buying, and they're great. They buy a lot of our stuff that's scalable and significant. Uh, they buy digital and traditional. We have an agency that does some of our in-store merchandising. We have a couple other niche agencies, but... By and large, VML, MediaVest, and Bravo are our three significantly scaled agencies. And notice none of them have next to them a designation of digital or traditional. Again, playing off of our internal kind of view that media is media is media. It doesn't really matter where it shows up. So what I'm curious about is how do you, working with these different agencies, how do you empower them to be creative and do great work, but still focused, still remain focused on Wendy's objectives? That's kind of the constant battle, right, is a lot of, folks in marketing just want to say, here's a bunch of information I'm going to push to the world and be done with it. And there are folks on the advertising side or even on the marketing side who just want art. And there's a balance between communication and art. Though they can exist in the same world 
And I would say we, we do a pretty good job of that. Not excellent. Sometimes you see work that, you know, is, isn't perfect. Uh, like any brand, we, we do a lot of communications every day and, you know, literally a million dollars or more a day of, of production and media goes out the door nationwide. So, uh, so you, you do have misses. But I, I think the way we, we generally are consistent is we provide clear direction to our partners. They know our brand voice very clearly. And ultimately, uh, we hold ourselves to pretty high standards. Uh, we, I have an, a team here that is very good at what they do, and our agencies are very good at what they do. And we try not to push work into the world that we aren't superbly proud of, we aren't totally proud of. Um, but I think clear direction goes a long way, and a clear brand voice goes a long way to help uh, actually produce work that everybody's proud of and, and is on brand. Well, you're clearly doing a lot of things well, and your leadership is is definitely putting or has put Wendy's in, a, in an amazing spot as far as their their social, digital, TV, in-store presence. Um, we've got a few closing questions to wrap up here. Is there anything that you have learned over the course of your current role at Wendy's that you wish you could go back and tell yourself when you first started? Good question. Um, I think the biggest thing that my team has learned is it's better to speak up and be a little uncomfortable in a meeting than regret not speaking up when you put work into the world that you're not proud of. And, and again, it doesn't happen a lot here. It hasn't happened a lot over the last several years. But once in a while, something will go out that we're not totally in love with, and we knew we wouldn't be in love with it um, because we just didn't say the right thing at the right time. Uh, I, I often say to my team, you know, the, the, and I, I'm sure I stole this from someone. I just don't. It's too poetic to be mine. But, you know, the, the pain of dissent is better than the pain of humiliation. So, you know, I'd rather someone be uncomfortable in a meeting and push a little bit, you know, be professional, be nice, don't be mean, but push a little bit and get, get better work into the world than push work into the world. And then it, there's a backlash. You know, there's actually several brands over the last week that have experienced huge backlashes over their creative. And I would argue that um, there were probably meetings leading up to that creative getting into the world where there were people that held their tongues. You know, a lot of people at big organizations try to keep their jobs and try to please their bosses. And it's important to keep your job and it's important to make sure your boss is happy. But ultimately, good work is what wins. And it doesn't always win, but usually it wins and makes everyone look better. So being brave in that moment and standing up for good work is it's probably the most important job you have at your role. And I always tell my team, if, if you ever get fired for, for standing up for something that you truly believe in here, I'm gonna support you all the way. I'm gonna. I'll, I'll go with you, because we're in. We're in. A, we're in this together to produce great work. Um, you don't have to put garbage work into the world, even though we all compromise sometimes. So, from the perspective of a leader, and this is kind of a side tangent, for any of our listeners who may be in a position where they feel like they should interject their opinion on something that is not what they feel is up to up to par, what what would be a what would you as a leader like to hear? Or how, how would you like to hear that phrased? And in what part of the process? Yeah, so it happens every day. I do it every day, and it happens to me every day. The best way usually to counter something that you feel like is going off the tracks is with data and examples. If you can use data and examples, immediately it doesn't become personal. Creative is, is an area where everyone has an opinion. Everyone thinks they're good at creative. Every single human being in the world is a critic to a television ad, to a social post, to a video, everybody. 
says, I like it or I love it, and their opinion is the only opinion that matters in many cases. What you have to do is bring to it data and examples that say, this is why what we're getting ready to do isn't the right thing to do. This is why we should think about this in a different way. And eventually you get to the point where you have enough examples where you are right that you don't have to bring as much data and examples. So, you know, you think about it, you go into a big company and there's the you know, executive creative director. The reason an executive creative director is the executive creative director usually is because they have brought enough valid direction to meetings like that that people say, this guy knows what he's doing or this woman knows what she's doing. But data and examples are supremely helpful there. We actually have an entire process that we go through, our ad team does, where we say, this is how you argue with creative. This is how you, you talk someone out of doing something they shouldn't. We have, a, we have a whole presentation that we have because it is an extremely important part of, of what we do. Uh, we don't always do it effectively, but it's extremely important. So I would, I would do your best. I would, if you know in advance going into something that something's going to go sideways, do some research before you show up and say, hey, this is why we ought to think about this differently. The other thing is be, be respectful. You know, you can't just be the jerk in the room who says, I hate all this. And the truth is, when you, if you do that a lot, it totally lowers your credibility. It's going to be like crying wolf. No one will listen to you. So you have to bring examples. You have to bring any data that you have to support your opinion. And once you get really good, you don't need to do as much research walking in the room. Second to last question here. Your job title alone is, or your, your role could be broken down into three different VP roles, honestly. But what what is it that you do that helps you maintain, uh, I guess, a high level of performance on each of these different uh, roles that you're overseeing and what you're doing and stay productive in general. So I, I trust my people. I uh, hire really good people and I trust them to do their jobs so I don't have to do their jobs for them. Uh, that's, I think, a lot of managers micromanage and that's why they are in meetings 12 hours a day. I'm not saying I have a lot of meetings. I do. But I think you let people hire great people, let them do their job and give them clear direction. And, and you can go higher and actually accomplish even more than, than you ever could if you were micromanaging. I really do think it's that simple. Just provide clear direction and hire great people and let them do their jobs. Uh, I have an excellent team here. I have an excellent, excellent agency partners that are amazing. And I remind them of that whenever I can because uh, I rely on them to do the work. So the short answer is don't micromanage. So last question, is there a book that you ever recommend to people or as far as business or career advice? I actually don't read a lot of business books. I really don't. And I don't because I find a lot of them, and um, there are some really good ones. I mean, I've read all the, you know, the, the biggies, the Dale Carnegie kind of books, the ones that everyone reads. But I find, um, I find if you just actually be a normal human being, you're much better at your job <laughs> than if you try to hold up some lofty, you know, attributes of your work. I mean, think about how you want to be treated, Right. You want, to be, you want to be left to do your job well. You want support in doing your job. You want clear direction on what's expected of you and what your performance should look like and what your, your ultimate outcome should be. I really think the best advice is just treat people how you'd want to be treated. And ultimately, you're, you're all trying to achieve an objective. Keep that objective in mind. You're trying to grow a business. Don't get stuck in the idea that, you know, you've got an office or you've got you know, a huge budget or you've got a huge team, all that stuff is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. If you get two people, you have 200 people. It does not matter. It's, it's treat people like they want to be treated and, and find really good people and let them do what they do. 
So I actually don't read a whole lot of business books. I, I read a lot of fiction, frankly. Uh, I'm working my way through American Gods right now because I know Showtime is going to have a series hitting soon. Hmm. I read the you know the whole the whole series for Game of Thrones, the you know Fire and Ice books. I read uh, stupid spy novels and and action novels. I I actually I get reading for me should be pleasurable. It shouldn't be homework, I guess. <laughs> and I read a lot at work for you know I'm reading business magazines. The, the the only the only thing that I read consistently in the business world is Harvard Business Review. I love Harvard Business Review. I'm a subscriber to it, and I, I read it online. I get a copy of it. It sits in the corner. But um, if you if you don't follow them on Twitter, you're doing yourself a disservice as a leader, I think, because they do an excellent job of helping you break down individual uh, situations and deal with individual situations. But I wouldn't point you to like you know here's my bookshelf of business books. Um, it just it doesn't exist because I think most of them are full of hot air. Well. Brandon, thank you so much again for coming on the show. It's It's been an absolute pleasure, and this has for sure been one of my favorite interviews. Uh, you guys are, Wendy's is killing it, and, and you are killing it as well, so keep up the great work. And I really hope that that guy gets to 18 million retweets. <laughs> I think it'd be good for both of you guys. I hope he does too. I'm sure he's going to get some free nuggets regardless, and uh, and just do me a favor and go get a frost today. <laughs> All right, both of you. Thanks for listening to the Food Marketing Nerds Podcast. For interview transcripts or to download your free social media ebook, check out foodmarketingnerds.com.